Okay, welcome to this episode of our show, True Data Ops. I'm your host, Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior. Each episode will bring you a podcast covering all things data ops with the people that are making data ops what it is today. If you've not done so already, be sure to look up and subscribe to the dataops.live YouTube channel because that's where you're going to find all the recordings for our past episodes. So if you missed any of last season's episodes or any of the earlier episodes this season, now's your chance to catch up over the upcoming holidays. Better yet, go to truedataops.org and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And my guest today is a guy who's actually interviewed me more times than I can even remember at this point. Uh, Eric Cavanaugh is a prolific podcaster, radio host, sometime keynote speaker, and an industry know-it-all. He's the CEO of Blur Group and an open data advocate for the United Nations and the host of DM Radio, the longest running show in the world of data. Woohoo! Yeah. Welcome to the show, Eric. All right. Thanks so much for inviting me. I uh, enjoy being on the hot seat today. So we'll see. Yeah, how it yeah. Goes. Flipped it around a little bit. Uh, you know, I think, you know, you, you, you've basically pioneered what we're doing now long before anybody else thought it was a good idea. Yeah. You know, what's funny is a long, long time ago, uh, I actually pitched this idea to the Data Warehousing Institute when I worked there. And uh, they didn't want it. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it. So I guess I'll do it with someone else. And what That's I right. realized is that you cannot have a software company without smart people. And I realized if I could just get three or two smart people in a room with me, virtual room on a weekly basis, we would have really interesting conversations. And I knew back in 2001, when I got into the data space, that it was going to be big can't, I had no idea how big it was going to get. I mean, I thought it was going to get big and it's been like orders of magnitude bigger than I even imagined. And that's just the data side for analytics, primarily operations. And now of course, AI, AI needs data. It's hungry for good quality data. Don't feed it the bad data. <laughs> Don't do that. So uh, it's, it's bigger than I thought and it's a lot of fun. So let's keep rocking. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I started, uh, luckily, I got started in the mid-90s with my uh, collaboration with Claudia Imhoff and Bill Inman. And, you know, just sat down one day at the time, we called it business intelligence. And it's like, well, logically, yeah, every business needs to understand their data. And yeah, like you said, who knew it was going to be this big? It's like, if, if I had a 100 gig database back then, I was like, wow, that's massive. Right. <laughs> and now we're like, uh, yeah, uh, that, that I can have 20 of those on my phone. Right. right. <laughs> so uh, t tell us a little bit about your background in data management and a bit about the, the Blur Group and what you all do over there. Sure. So the Blur Group is a hybrid media analyst firm designed to examine the world of data and data management and help folks better understand what the different technologies are, what the methodologies are what to do, when to do it, how to do it, all that important stuff that business people need to understand. So obviously we've gone long past just the old database environment. Everyone knows what a database is, or at least has some general idea. And now we're into things like data fabric and data mesh. Uh, that's an interesting conversation in and of itself. But we basically just try to help people understand what are the tools, what are the technologies, what are the methods, what can you do to improve your own view of the business world and, and how can you get that done? So we do what I like to call transparent 
research, meaning we do live broadcasts and we talk to industry visionaries and practitioners and prospects and customers and all these different people. And really the whole idea is to hash out these concepts in the round and to do so in live broadcasts, because I've always found that when there's a live broadcast, people tend to pay more attention <laughs> and the, the guests tend to be on their best behavior because they know it's live and they know that these things are happening in real time. So that, that was the mission and we've been doing it now. We're what entering year 15, I guess. So wow. we've been doing this for a while. That's great. Yeah. Well, and not only is it live, it's being recorded and people are going to be able to replay it. So right. whatever you said, that's right. <laughs> it, it, it's now on the internet and it's, it's there forever. What do they say? The internet never forgets, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. So, um, this open data advocate thing for the UN, I, I didn't know that you did that. And I didn't even know that was a thing. So you know, can you tell us a little bit about what is this thing with the United Nations and data? Sure. So a really nice guy reached out to me, I guess, almost 10 years ago now and asked me if I'd be willing to speak at a conference about open data for the UN. And I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure, I'll do that. I have no problem doing that. So I went over to Abu Dhabi and then later went to Dubai and later went to Kazakhstan, of all places, wow. and uh, gave talks on open data. And it's funny, Kent, because when I heard that the UAE and uh, uh, these other countries were looking for open data, I was like, open data, huh? Something tells me it's closed data that they want to talk about and security and finding ways to secure their data. And of course, that was a big push. But I will say that uh, some of these Middle Eastern countries are really moving by leaps and bounds to leverage data and to leverage open data for the benefit of their people. And I'm a huge open data advocate. I mean, I've written about this, talked about it for years. And I, I look at something I like to call outsider trading. I wrote about this a number of years ago too. And what happened is I just suddenly realized, wait a minute, these investment banks have access to so much real world transactional data that they can normalize trends for specific public companies and then understand with real transactional data who is going to meet or beat market estimates. And I thought to myself, wow, that's uh, that's kind of an unfair advantage. Like imagine if we're all playing poker and the rule is I can see all of your cards, but you can't see mine. Right. If I lose, I'm an idiot. Right. And so that's that's when I really began pushing forward this whole concept of open data and suggesting that you know, credit card companies are going to sell their exhaust data, as they call it, to third parties like investment banks. I think there should be some policy or regulation that says they must also publish an anonymized version for the general public to use. So we can all look and see, hmm, soft drinks are spiking in this region. Oranges are spiking in that region. You know, to think about other ways, too, that open data can help business in general and individual people and individual businesses by understanding, well, how many oranges did come in? How many oranges were in Florida this year? How many uh, widgets were sold in this in region or that region? Whatever sort of data is not proprietary or would benefit the public at large, I wanna see more and more of that in the public domain such that small and mid-sized businesses can benefit from this reality, from this really valuable information and not just investment banks. and. You know, frankly, I think that one of the reasons why the stock market has been doing so well, despite going through some difficult periods like COVID and the lockdowns and these other things, is because insiders know who to bet on. 
And if they knew who to bet on, well, then they're going to keep winning and keep going well until there's some sort of macroeconomic correction, which we haven't seen yet. But yeah, so that it's a bit of a thread on open data. And I talked about that for the UN and I talk about that in other channels as well. But I really do think we need a leveling of the playing field in terms of basic information that is verifiable, that is useful for businesses to, to plan and to understand. So you got your own data. I want people to be able to see what is the big picture of data in the GDP and all that kind of fun stuff. So I, I get passionate about the open data concept. Yeah, I, I can see that. And it really, it goes back to, you know, in the very early days of data warehousing where, you know, I think now we call it third party data is the idea of being able to augment your own data set with external data sets. And that's really what you're talking about is, you know, stuff and putting it in the public domain, which is even better, right? Because right. there's there's data aggregators and folks who sell this data, sell data of various kinds, uh, right. you know, Snowflake Marketplace right. and a pioneer in doing that. And some of Snowflake's customers have gotten some of this data you're talking about, like uh, consumer trends and foot traffic and all sorts of things and put it out there actually for free. Some of them monetize it, some of them don't. Just depends on the company and and where they're getting the data from. But yeah, there's there's lots of stuff out there. I, I'm glad to see some of these initiatives where you know some governments like uh, New York New York City publishes a lot of data, but it's you got to download it and it's spreadsheets and all of that. Um, so it's not completely usable right. that for the average for the average uh, small business. But things like data marketplaces, someone else automates that, puts it in, and this is going to bring me right to my, my main topic. It basically produces a data product uh -huh. that is easily consumable by smaller businesses. So uh, I want to talk about data products a little bit here with you. It's you know become a hot industry buzzword, kind of started out with the data mesh world, but it's gone beyond that now. I think it's probably one of the concepts of data mesh that people have sort of really attached to, this idea mm -hmm. of data products. So um, what's, what's your take on that concept? And how important do you think it is for this, you know, our, our ever-evolving data landscape? Yeah, I think it's very important. I think, frankly, that term represents an inflection point in our industry. Because at the, at the end of the day, the business doesn't care about dynamic data pipelines, ETL versus ELT. They don't care necessarily which algorithm is running in the background to surface some business value. What they care about is the business value. They care about understanding what's happening in the business. And so, it, you know, years ago, a guy I'm sure you know, Dave Wells, very, very smart guy, good friend of mine, he, he referred to what he called under the hood technology. And I was like, oh, what, what does that mean? And he said, well, you don't need to know how carburetors work or how the pistons work in your engine to know that your car works and you can drive it places. And he said, really, we need to move into a direction where most of the inner workings or the nuts and bolts of data management, data warehousing, data analytics are genuinely under the hood technology. So you don't have to know. Now, there are people who do have to know. Obviously, there are teams that have to be able to audit and understand what's going on underneath there to make sure that it's accurate and, and verifiable and so forth. But for the business people, they just want to know how many widgets have we sold? What, what are the possibilities for our next steps? You know, what are some different strategies we can employ to get more business or to optimize our business model. That's where data products come into play. So I think that it's a very positive development that we're talking about data products because that's what the business really wants. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the, we people used to think, well, we don't really want black box, but in the reality, from business perspective, they do. They don't need to know. Did right. you use Data Vault or dimensional modeling? Are you right. running on SQL Server, or Oracle, or Snowflake? Doesn't really matter as long as they can get the data they need and the information they need to run their business and make good business decisions. And so that's led to this, yeah, obviously the productization of data mm -hmm. and close it in something that's easily consumable, discoverable. And that of course plays right into your, your whole open data mm -hmm. um, program is, you know, you know, having a catalog of, you know, what data is out there? What can I use for my analytics that I can just, you know, basically do a couple of clicks, get access to that data and start running the numbers as it were. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Transparency is the best disinfectant yeah. too. Right. Uh, when you can see things, then there's trust, right? So you want to be able to drill down and understand what's going on. But for the purpose of running the business, you just want to know the data and understand what matters to you and personalization too, right? Products that are specific to certain audiences make a lot of sense. You know, we've seen this over the years in many different fashions, roll-ups, hierarchies, for example. The business wants to see this view. The marketers want to see that view. You know, we yes. want to, and you kind of see some of that in the, in the principles of data mesh though you know i'll be candid and say i'm still not entirely sure how data mesh works and i think that's because there are lots of different definitions there are now like 20 different definitions for what data mesh means for different groups for different organizations which is fine but you know i think it's more responsible to focus and talk about the data products and make sure that your it team and there is some documentation to explain how you got here you got to have the the how we calculated this component of the of the equation although that's going to get harder with these large language models right so, yeah because then the, that becomes a little more obfuscated on how right. did they actually get the answer other than this llm calculated it right <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right. That's, you know that's the strange space we're in but i don't mean to, to jump tracks on you but uh, it is something to be in, interested in and talking about for sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is the data ops show. So we're going to talk a little bit about data ops and how that fits into this and what your perspective is on, on data ops in particular, what it is and where does it fit in this landscape of doing things like having LLMs and AI and producing data products to deliver business value. Right. So I think it's a fantastic concept and I've been watching this really from the beginning uh, data, the folks at Data Kitchen, obviously, the folks at DataOps.Live, there are a bunch of different companies that are getting into the data ops space. And, and basically, it's a separation of concerns. For, from my perspective, data ops refers to the operations around data management that must be transparent, that must be auditable, uh, that are named in appropriate ways such that you don't muddy the waters, right? You want to be able to manage data in a marshalling area that uh, is transparent and understandable and has an audit trail, and then you connect it to your analytics, and then you connect it to your operations and other places like that. But to have the discrete marshalling area for data management, I think makes a ton of sense. And it's what we learned in DevOps, right? You figure, I've always talked and talked about this uh, business IT divide, and Dave Wells has talked about too over the years. Business wants to get things done. IT says not so fast. We have to maintain all this stuff. I think DevOps came along and really helped 
mitigate that conflict because you had developers working directly with the business. And then of course, what happened is they did all kind of great stuff and maybe didn't document it as well as they should have. So there's always one missing piece somewhere, but now you get automation. You know, I remember Wearscape coming along and automating the documentation mm -hmm. of data warehousing. This, this is one of the, the most exciting parts about where we're going in this whole data journey is that in the cloud, and I think the cloud really absorbed a lot of the principles of, of SOA. Remember we used to talk about service-oriented architecture? Yeah, yeah. Even though it's kind of gone away, service orientation has not gone away. And I think the best practices and principles of SOA just got baked into the cloud. And now you see this automated testing, automated development, automating uh, basically any part of the process that you can, you want to automate. We had a guy in the, on DM radio probably 10 years ago. I was like, well, you don't want to automate everything. He goes, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, really. As much as possible. But what, where I'm kind of going with this is if you are responsible in your data management, if you do have a formalized data ops methodology and discipline, and discipline is really important stuff, then you are going to solve yourself so many other problems. You're not going to get problems that you would get otherwise of muddying the waters and not being able to unwind things. You know, that's the, the danger of the business moving too fast with like a DevOps is that you can't then unwind that stuff very easily and you wanna have those audit trails. So to me, data ops is a, is a wonderful, very important discipline, especially in the age of AI, because these AI engines are gonna need highly trustworthy data. You're not gonna to wanna to point your data at or your AI, just any data, because that's what Microsoft did with Tay when they unveiled Tay on Twitter like 10 years ago and it just started insulting people. I'm like, whoa, time out. Because they trained it on nonsense. You got to train these things on corporate, trusted, governed data. And that's where data ops comes into play. Yeah. And uh, do, uh, do you think it's possible for people to even deliver value at the scale they're trying to do today if they're not adopting some sort of a data ops and automation approach? No. No, I, I sure don't, you know, because you, you, you sort of quickly realize that if you haven't separated out the management of information assets that are going into operations, that are going into analytics, if you can't control that and understand it, then you've lost control is really what the bottom line. So it's important to, to know what's going. It's like the recipe, right? It's like managing the different products that go into your recipes. You want to make sure you know where they came from. They have the you know, expiration dates, et cetera. So if you run a restaurant, you have to be very careful about what the sous chef does, right? The sous chef prepares everything such that the chefs and everything can do their job and you get good food at the other side. But data ops is almost like that sous chef job. It's like oh, making yeah. sure all the products are in line, in order, are appropriate, they're what we wanted. And uh, that's a really important aspect of running a good uh, kitchen, of running a good restaurant, is having a good sous chef. And I think that's what data ops is. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because one of the seven pillars talks about basically component design. And, you know, back in the day, and I know you remember this, we talked about modular programming, right? Right. Same kind of thing, getting things down to the smallest possible component, which kind of gets to that SOA concept and microservices again, but in from a data perspective, so we can put together whatever data products we need based on what the consumers of the data require. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. I mean, well, I, I like the, I like the sous chef thing. I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge foodie 
Um, so <laughs> that resonates really well with me. It's like, oh yeah. yeah. No, I just came up with that and then round. So you inspired me. There you go. All right. Awesome. That's good. It's like, we'll have to, we'll have to hang on to that analogy for a while here being, uh, this could be a new role instead of data wrangler, you're a data sous chef. Yeah. That's right? about right. Well, because they, you know, one of the greater, more interesting, uh, and I think appropriate mantras that I heard or uh, just descriptions years ago was that uh, seatbelts don't make your car go more slowly, right? Seatbelts protect your car and that's governance. And so you know, one of the principles of data ops is governance and change management. And uh, governance is very important because, you know, it's like when, when you're mentally free to explore ideas, which you are, if you have a data ops program, it's just like the chef. If the chef has a good sous chef, the chef can play around with all kinds of stuff and doesn't have to worry about something being past its, its expiration date or something being inappropriate. They know they have that trust in their team and so they can explore ideas. And that's the beauty of analytics is being able to come up with ideas and have that so-called conversation with your data. And when you have good governance, then the business knows they can play around. They can try stuff. They can use this, you know, this new data because they have that trust, because they have that belief in the quality. And if you don't have that, I mean, we all know the stories where people lose trust in data. They just don't use it and they do something else. Exactly. And so, you know, there's a real psychology to this stuff. And to me, the data ops discipline provides enough governance and enough auditability and and certitude to enable the conversation with data to enable the fun stuff which is the analytics yeah and yeah i think you, you just asked answered one of the questions i was going to ask you is how critical do you think data governance is especially in the the world of ai and llms and things like that yeah it's huge i mean it's absolutely huge and you have to have it. I mean, in data warehousing, you want to make sure that this is trusted information. It's your certified report capable information. It's what you would tell the auditors, for example. So it, it's really important. You have to know that whole lineage, what the heck happened. And luckily we have tools that can do that these days. You know, years ago, it was very difficult to do that. It was possible, but it would take a lot of time. But, you know, the, the component about automation is really important too. automated regression testing and things of this nature you know the more you can automate the better off you're going to be so yeah i mean governance is absolutely crucial and automation helps you get there by tackling tedious things i mean goodness gracious the you know the amount of time you can spend manually doing stuff that can be automated it could be all day long it could be your entire job and that's no fun you know it's just it's not a fun job to uh <laughs> to manually check 10,000 records to make sure that they all have the appropriate fields in them. That's not fun at all. Yeah. Yeah. One of my earlier jobs in the, in the very early nineties working for a, a little software company that was a startup that was building stuff on Oracle is I somehow ended up being the guy in charge of version control of Oracle forms and reports and TDL scripts on Unix and oh. having to manually create the branches and create, if you remember, tarballs to send off to the customers for, you know, to be unrolled on their machine or to install the software. I don't know how I ended up with that particular job because I was also the chief architect. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah, and that was yeah. You want yeah? Talk about tedious. Yeah, that 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 was uh, like oh my gosh, that was. Uh, if I never have to do that again, which I don't expect I ever will, yeah, that that's 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 awesome. But yeah, being able to automate that sort of stuff. So that's the getting into things like CI/CD and version control and all that. Being able to automate that, yeah, leaves yeah. you a lot more time to actually write good code, figure out what you're supposed to be doing, find the right data, right, do the right transformations if you need transformations, do build the data pipelines, but being able to keep have something that help you keep track of all of that so you're not writing over code that did work and now it doesn't work and you've got no way to roll back because you didn't version it, you didn't right. do a branch. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's right. all all critically important. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, and I love the manufacturing discipline get, that gets woven into your view of the data ops world, right? Is like, well, let's think about this, guys. If we have all these different steps in the process, we want to discreetly manage each one such that we can branch something, fix it, and it doesn't take the whole system down, right? It, what was the other analogy I came up with a while ago? For those folks who are really kind of getting up there in age, you might recall that the Christmas lights you used to buy like in the 1970s, if one of those lights went out, the whole thing went down. And then someone very clever figured out, hey, if we just route the circuit twice, then we don't have to have that problem. And just the one light that goes out will go out and you can fix it. Because before you would have to go and like find the light. <laughs> like out That's across burned out, yes. <laughs> to get the whole thing to work again. That was an engineering issue. Like someone sat down and thought, hey, wait a minute. If we just run the circuit twice here, we don't have to have the whole thing. The single point of failure, right? That was the, the literal single point of failure in the old design of Christmas lights is that one light going out would kill the whole thing. And you don't want that. So that's kind of what DataOps has figured out is, especially what you folks are doing at uh, DataOps.Live, is you figured out how to branch these little bits and pieces such that you can work on something. It's like a mechanic being able to work on a part of your car without having to your car have to be in the shop, right? I mean, that's that's some pretty interesting stuff that you can address these issues. Well, you also see it with you know with the Teslas and some other things where they can just update the software. You didn't have to bring it into the shop at all. They just updated the software. And you know that's when the user experience really hums and that's when people are happy and that's when morale goes up. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the uh, some of the innovations that Snowflake helped with this a lot, like zero copy clone is my absolute favorite feature that Snowflake came up with because now you can not only branch your code, but you branch your data which saves so much work and so much headaches because you're not going to go in, run a new, we'll just say for lack of a better example, an ETL script that updates all the data in the database and go, oh crap, that was wrong. How do I roll back? Oh, now I got to go find a backup tape. I got to do a restore of the database. You don't have to do that in Snowflake. You do a zero copy clone first and run all your tests on the clone. And right. if it works, great. If not, you blow it away and do another clone and do the next iteration. Um, and that was a that was a huge game changer, especially in in my mind uh, when I was originally working at Snowflake. It's like, wow, we can we can do some, you know, some kind of agile DevOps stuff now with data. And so that that, that got back to, baked into what DataOps.Live does on the Snowflake platform. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting because, as you know, how how many customers did you ever work with that had enough disk space? to actually make a full copy of their production data warehouse in right. order to test the new queries and get the indexes right before they moved it into production. 
It's brutal. Right. Yeah. N- nobody could do it. You could, And nowadays you're talking hundreds of terabytes. There's no way anybody could afford to do that without something like this zero copy clown. Yeah. So well, it, um, go ahead. looking at the seven pillars of true data ops, you know, if you, are there any there that jump out to you as, as being, you know, I guess, critically important? I think you already said governance, which is one of the pillars there. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, they're all good. Uh, they're all important. Um, you know, I think collaboration and self-service is really important. And, you know, self-service is hard to, to pull off. You really have to think about workflows and things of this nature. But, uh, you know, collaboration is always important. Self-service is important. You don't want people waiting on other people to make decisions about things. You know, that's one of the, the keys, I think, to success, with, especially with analytics. Because if you realize you need a new data source and you have to go file some IT ticket to get someone to come and provision the source for you, and that takes you know a week or 10 days or something, that's going to kill whatever creative juice you just had flowing. Yeah. So you want to be able to, to give people their own little sandboxes, their own marshalling areas, if you will, to play around with their data. And this is something I learned about, gosh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, in the OLAP space with a company uh, called Raza, there was a client of mine that got bought by Hyperion, that got bought by Oracle. It's now the Oracle DRM tool. But they were talking about hierarchy management. And the guy who came up with the idea, Doug Cosby, a very, very clever guy, super nice guy too. He said uh, it was for a big bank. And he goes, well, you guys have a hierarchy problem. And they're like, what do you mean by that? And he goes, you need to roll up hierarchies by different divisions, by different departments, and give people their own view of the same data. Right. And that's the key. So you don't want to mess with the data layer itself. That's that's the raw data. But what you want to be able to do is analyze it from this perspective, from that perspective, with different dimensions. And that's what we're now able to do much more effectively. But it's very important to have that governance in place, to have the audit trails and then to let people do what they want. You know, I years and years ago, I wrote my thesis on uh, deconstruction as a as a concept. And I remember studying Jacques Derrida and he talked all about deconstruction. And it was interesting. It was called Structure, Sign and Play in the Discourse of the Human Sciences is this uh, paper that he wrote. And basically what he did is he said, look, this you have this concept of a center, but it's not really a center, but it is central to the integrity of this thing. Right. And the best way I could describe it is to say you have a number line that goes from negative 10 to 10. The zero in the middle is the foundation it is the center upon which you can even have 10 versus negative 10 but zero is an abstraction but at least it's a concept that helps you kind of wrap the data around to be able to do some analysis and i you know i get excited about this stuff because it challenges you to really think through what is it that we're trying to understand what are the dependencies here what is the implication for our business that's these are analytical questions that are enabled by having some discipline by having some formation right we the star schema for example you know the kimball versus inman all these different ways of thinking and of course a lot of that stuff is now baked into guess what the large language models the llms because that in my opinion that really is where everything is going to go so it makes the data ops storyline much more important because you're going to want these anchors of truth these embeddings that are your trusted corporate data and you're gonna have a real good chance of getting that right if you have data ops 
as a central discipline for managing your environment. So basically, it's, it's almost like now or never, people. <laughs> like, get get right. it right now, because if you don't, and like a few years go down, you can't untrain models very well. You know, you'll have to start over again, and that's going to be very unpleasant. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, unfortunately, we're we got to wrap up, Eric. I mean, you and I could go on for literally hours about pretty much all these topics that we're just hit on. Uh, what's next for you? Do you have any conferences or meetups or anything that you're going to be speaking at in the next couple of months? Uh, well, we're always doing DM radio Thursdays at three Eastern. I will, uh, I'll promote a couple interesting things. Uh, we do have a stealth project we're working on right now with humans, which are uh, unique marketing identified names. So we're trying to solve for the loss of third party cookies. We've got a, a project, the, the code name is cookie cutter. So we're working on that. I'm also working with a really wonderful group of people uh, in Pittsburgh from University of Pittsburgh, Andy, Hanna, and 1486 Labs, back to that conversation around alternative data. They're building out uh, a, a group, an organization that will serve as liaisons for purchasing and selling data at scale. So alternative data, third-party data, they're trying to be Sherpas, if you will, to help the, the business world understand what goes into buying data, what goes into selling data, how can we grease the tracks and facilitate this conversation and this practice. So watch for some uh, some updates about 1486 Labs and Blue Street data. And uh, otherwise, send me an email, info at dmradio.biz. I'm always uh, curious to get new folks on the show and and to share more insights about what to do, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, who to do it with, all that fun stuff. Okay, and where can folks find uh, and listen to DM Radio? DMRadio.biz. Uh, we're uh, coast to coast. We're in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Atlanta, D.C. Our TV show, Future Proof, now has its own time slot in Washington, D.C., so we're pretty excited about that. Uh, and you could be on all these shows by just reaching out and let me know you want to come on and talk about data. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for being my guest today, Eric. And, you know, thanks for everyone else for, for joining and hope you enjoyed this episode of the True Data Ops podcast. We're going to be taking our holiday break for the next, uh, you know, month or so, actually. And we'll, we won't be back until January 24th of 2024. Wow. And it's here already. Yes. Hard to, hard to believe. So kicking off the new year, I'm going to be talking with my buddy, the Snowflake Data Superhero and Evangelist for ThoughtSpot, Thought Sonny Rivera. So be sure to tune in for that. And as always, be sure to like and repost the replays from today's show and tell your friends about the True Data Ops podcast. Don't forget to go to truedataops.org and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. So until next time and next year, this is Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior, wishing you Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year. Bye for now. Take care.